and welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, its director. Today we're welcoming Professor Kerry Gershanik, who is a visiting scholar at the Graduate Institute of East Asian Studies, National Chengchi University in Taiwan for the past three years. He's a senior research associate at the Thammasat University Faculty of Law in Thailand, an adjunct professor with the University of Canberra's Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis in Australia, and a member of the Research Institute for Japan-US-Taiwan Relations Security Think Tank. He was also the Distinguished Visiting Professor at the Service Academies of the Royal Thai Army and the Royal Thai Navy for a total of seven years. Previously, Professor Gershanik was a strategic planner and spokesman for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. A former Marine Corps officer, he has extensive intelligence, counterintelligence, special warfare, combat arms, and strategic communications experience. He worked with the U.S. Information Agency in Washington, D.C., and at U.S. embassies in East and Southwest Asia. As a senior civil servant, he helped lead U.S. Department of Defense international relations and security cooperation activities in 43 countries in the Indo-Pacific region for 10 years. Among other works, he is the author of two very important books, Political Warfare, Strategies for Combating China's Plan to Win Without Fighting, and most recently, Media Warfare, Taiwan's Battle for the Cognitive Domain. He's joining us today to speak on how China conducts political warfare, Taiwan and Thailand case studies. Welcome, Professor. Robert, thank you very much for having me. As our host has said, I'll be speaking today on how China conducts political warfare against Taiwan and Thailand. Let me lay a foundation before I get into the specifics of those two. I'll explain why I wrote the book, uh, Political Warfare, a book on strategies for combating China's plan to win without fighting. What I wanted to get across at this point is that most Americans don't understand the concept of political warfare. Just as in the late 1940s, America was clueless about it, which is why George Kennan had to wrote a memo uh, that got the U.S. government focused on fighting the Soviet Union's political warfare. Um, it's been three decades since the U.S. had any institutions or even had any general awareness of what political warfare is and how the People's Republic of China is using this insidious weapon to destroy us. So I wrote the first book on political warfare to help America understand the, the scope and the nature of this existential threat. I wanted to help American policymakers understand that China is at war with us. They say they are at war with us. We need to listen to them and react accordingly from a policy and an operational level. We've had bad experience going back to 9-11 where an organization said, I'm at war with you, America. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill Americans. And our policymakers gaffed it off, said, no, you, you wear a towel on your head. You live in a cave and you carry an AK-47. You're no threat. You're, you're not at war with us. We, you know, we don't take you seriously. And then we had 
nearly 3,000 Americans die very hideous deaths in the World Trade Center, the fields of Pennsylvania, and in the Pentagon, then our policymakers woke up and said, yeah, no kidding, I guess you're at war with us and we'll go to war too. Well, that, we're at that state now where a lot of our policymakers are in denial, a lot of our academics are in denial, and certainly our news media is. So I wanted to, to help America understand that China considers itself at war with us, and it's at war with us using many warfares, I think, in terms of warfares. And I wrote the book also to not just admire the problem, to describe the problem, it was also to give very substantial recommendations as to what the US government could do uh, uh, on a whole of society basis, not just all of government basis, to fight, to uh, to counter and and be victorious in this war, just as we were in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. It's important to understand what political warfare is. The George Kennan definition you'll see on the screen—that's just basically the employment of all means, short of kinetic warfare, that is shooting rounds, shooting missiles, shooting rifles at each other to achieve national objectives. The Chinese Communist Party builds from this, but basically it's total war to them. It's different. In democracies, we're, we're self-restraining. Uh, there, we we have put constraints on what it is that we do short of kinetic warfare. From the Chinese Communist Party perspective, no such restraints. It is total war, all-encompassing, and they use the term unrestricted warfare. Everything is permitted, and I'll go into some detail on that later, but basically biological warfare is permitted, um, assassination is permitted, hostage taking is permitted as a, as, as a daily routine, and we saw this with the Huawei uh, case, but many other times hostage taking is SOP for the Chinese Communist Party. So in an unrestricted warfare, there's 24 different warfares that China plans to use against us and other democracies. And I would say they're using them right now. The goals for PRC political warfare are laid out. Most academics I deal with are focused on, well, you know, all the, all the poor CCP is trying to do is retain power. Um, no, it's, it's not all they're trying to do. Of course, they're trying to retain their, their power. It's a totalitarian regime. What totalitarian uh, ruler, dictator would ever want to give up that power? Yes, that's basic. But they also want to achieve regional hegemony and global hegemony. And we, we lose sight of that, I think, too much in the circles that I talk to in the U.S. government and, again, in academia and with many of the news media who are totally unfamiliar with the goals of the, the PRC. The guiding framework is not to win without fighting. They'll tell you that the Chinese, uh, the, uh, the agents basically of influence that I deal with will tell you that, yeah, it's a long struggle. We're prepared to fight. We just want to win short of going to kinetic war with you. The way you do it under the guiding framework is there in the, the communists are very good at this in China. They get you to think in such a way that you are doing what they want you to do without actually having to be told. Ambassador Katsukan from uh, Singapore puts it very succinctly in this quote saying the CCP wants you to think in such a way that you will, of your own volition, do what it wants you to do without you being told to do it. 
And you see that repeatedly in the news media. You see that repeatedly in many countries. We don't want you to use the Reuters construct. We don't want to anger China. We don't want to irk China. We don't want to upset China. So let's just do this. Let's not take this step or let's not support Taiwan or let's, let's just do whatever it is we think China wants us to do without them having to barge in like they do in Thailand, literally barge into the foreign minister's office and scream at the foreign minister because somebody in the foreign ministry did something China did not like. The objectives for China's political warfare are both internal and external. Again, internally, they want to not just retain unity, they want to build unity, they want to repress the Uyghurs, they want to repress any critics internally, they want to repress any dissent. They do it quite, quite brutally. Tiananmen Square was just one of many massacres over the years. By some estimates, the Chinese Communist Party has killed 70 million Chinese more than any other war has done, any other foreign power has done. And so that internal repression, political warfare is a key part of that. Political warfare also is very important in influencing foreign governments, international organizations like the United Nations, the World Health Organization, uh, Greenpeace, other you know, the, the so-called environmental organizations. Uh, they've had a great influence on them to support or at least not obstruct China's goals and policies. Political warfare is a tool to divide enemies, to demoralize enemies, and to use the PRC term disintegrate, which is basically read that as destroy enemies and critics. So those are the objectives of political warfare. Next slide is a, is a map that the PLA Navy, the People's Liberation Army Navy uses to show what they Chinese military thinks it has to overcome to achieve its regional hegemony and ultimately its global hegemony. They see the goal as breaking through what is called the island chains. Both the Chinese call it that and the West calls it that, Japan, the US. We call it the first island chain, second island chain. But basically they want to use political warfare, not just military might to break those island chains, which are quite effective in constraining, or have been quite effective, put it that way, since 1949, in constraining uh, the People's Republic of China's expansionism beyond taking Tibet, beyond taking Mongolia, beyond taking uh, East Turkestan, all these other areas that they've taken. Uh, the, the first and second island chains, uh, until they've had a powerful navy, uh, have been very effective in, in making sure that, at least from a maritime perspective, they have not been able to uh, proceed with their expansionist objectives. The focus of China's political warfare is top-down driven. You do not see this in democracies. You don't see this in America. You don't see this in Japan. You don't see this in England. You, you simply don't see the tremendous effort from the top-down uh, on our public diplomacy, on our information efforts worldwide. You do in China. China is a party state and the head of it, Xi Jinping, the Central Committee, the National People's Congress Standing Committee, from the top down, there's very detailed direction 
on the, the People's Republic of China's political warfare. This is a very simplified chart, but just tries to show how the different departments, whole, whole of government, all of what we think of as private industry, the, the SOEs and the other uh, private enterprise, they all have Communist Party cells. They're all required by law to support PRC espionage, PRC political warfare, United Fronts, all those other operations. So again, this is a very simplified chart, but it, it depicts just how centrally driven this political war is directed out of Beijing. This is another way to look at it. This is an American perspective of how the CCP through the party state apparatus influences K through 12 in America, our universities, our political uh, structure, all the different organizations that are used to target the government and the US military. Very concerted effort, again, whole of government approach. Every party state organ is involved. And, and again, top-down direction, you can bet there's a lot of supervision and follow-up at every level, and it involves hundreds of billions of dollars, not just billions in this effort. Different strategies, and this isn't all-encompassing, but just some of the, the major strategies that the PRC uses to conduct political warfare against us to destroy us. United Fronts, getting together with other organizations that aren't necessarily communists, that aren't necessarily pro-PRC, but finding common ground with those organizations against the common enemy. Could be terrorist group, radical activists in Japan uh, who are against the uh, US, uh, Japan, US military alliance. Other organizations, they, they form united fronts with them. They use the Belt and Road Initiative to develop united front organizations around the world that basically are doing the PRC's bidding. And many of them don't even know it or don't recognize they are basically agents of influence for the Chinese Communist Party. They're just accepting money from China and then they're self-censoring. They're advertising in, in publications, newspapers that are pro-Beijing and anti-US, for example. And so that's, that's a, in, in a very small degree how the, the United Fronts operate. And the PRC sees everything as warfare. So they, they frame, there's 24 warfares in the book, Unrestricted Warfare, uh, that they wage against us during peacetime. There's no declared war here. During peacetime, they're conducting at least 24 different so-called warfares against us. But as the foundation for political warfare, there's uh, something that was officially adopted that is called the three warfares, which consists of strategic psychological warfare, media warfare, and legal warfare or lawfare. So again, these are the strategies they use. The books, both books go into great detail on all this, so I won't spend a lot of time here discussing it. In addition to that, we see what we saw with the Soviet Union. We see active measures. We see violence. We see the hiring of street gangs and criminal organizations. We see the establishment of proxy armies that I'll talk about in a moment. Coercion, of course, assassination, disappearances very common. And then what uh, in common parlance these days is called hybrid warfare, gray zone operations and other covert operations that are short of war, short of the threshold that the US or Japan would respond militarily or, or Taiwan might respond militarily, but um, they're, they're just continuing slicing away to these hybrid and gray zone operations, just like Russia does with Crimea and in the Ukraine. 
Digital colonization deserves great study. Uh, I'll talk about it more in a moment, but so how China is using the digital infrastructure that it's building under the Belt and Road Initiative to basically set up surveillance states, basically steal the data to control nations in Africa and South America, very strategically important Pacific Islands. Cyber warfare, of course, we do read about in the headlines. Most of these other uh, strategies, incidentally, hardly ever make American headlines, unfortunately. Cyber warfare periodically does, and an online terror, a whole separate way of coercing, intimidating, suppressing criticism. Um, it's also called social media warfare. Those are all part of the active measures. Military intimidation is political warfare. What the, um, what the Chinese are doing in the East China Sea, what they're doing against Taiwan with the massive numbers of bombers and attack aircraft uh, going into uh, Taiwan's ADIZ, what they're doing against Japan in the Senkakus in the East China Sea, uh, military attacks into India, uh, the threats to drop nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs on Australia, and certainly the, the threats in many forms to include threatening to nuke Guam and to nuke American cities that turn Los Angeles into a sea of fire. That's all part of political warfare, the military intimidation. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I have several slides of just selected PRC tools and tactics that they use to support those strategies. Americans don't see these tools and tactics. They're happening every day all around us. But because the news media doesn't cover them by and large, and because it doesn't affect necessarily every American on a daily basis or many Americans on a daily basis. They don't see the academic infiltration in the United States and Taiwan, where I have worked for three years in an academic institution. I've seen the pan red professors up close. I know them personally. They're basically agents of influence for the People's Republic of China. They've infiltrated the university system. They're high up in administration and in, and in uh, professorial teaching positions. Um, Chinese student associations are weapons of coercion, intimidation, and espionage. Um, and, and of course, uh, uh, the United Front uh, operations in the United States, in England, in, in many other countries. In Thailand, for example, there's more Confucius Institutes. Um, uh, in addition to Chinese student associations and all other countries of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations combined. There's a reason for that. Thailand is a major, um, is the number one target in ASEAN or was uh, the number one target for the PRC in, the, in ASEAN. And so they built the greatest number of CSSAs and Confucius Institutes there. Diplomatic coercion, strangulation, we, we see that with Taiwan, we see that with other countries. Um, weaponized tourism, they get a country dependent on China's tourists. And then if the country does anything that irks, angers, or upsets China, they cut off the tourism and punishes the country like they did with South Korea, like they've done in, in the Pacific Islands, um, and like they, they began to do in Japan but then COVID cut off the, uh, interrupted their ability um, to use weaponized tourism to a very effective degree in Japan. Again, I don't wanna go into every one of these tactics, but I do wanna give you a sense. The tactics are broad. 
um, wide ranging. Media warfare, I'll go into in a moment, but we, we see this in the Chinese American community in the United States. Almost every publication in the, uh, the diaspora, the, the Chinese diaspora in America, every Chinese language publication now is under the control of the PRC, either directly or indirectly um, through uh, funding, uh, through grants. Same thing in Taiwan. Uh, their publications there are under the control. They've been co-opted. Uh, advertising dollars drive editorial content there, as it does in the United States often. Indoctrinement uh, may be a new term for many of you. It's basically using movies like the Wolf Warrior series of movies out of China, but also video games made in China. China, TikTok, Tencent, they make a lot of video games. And in the video games, they indoctrinate children, video games aimed at children. Indoctrination, simple example, you're taught as a child using a Chinese sanctioned video game that Taiwan is part of, of China. It has always been part of China since ancient times. Tibet is part of China, has always been part of China since ancient times. You get the point. Subtle and not so subtle indoctrination through entertainment means. Again, some of these are self-explanatory, some need greater study, but again, I recommend you buy my books and or get my books. One is free, the other you have to pay for. United Fronts, we do have some expose that, exposés about them in American media. This Newsweek article, I applaud Newsweek for this. A lot of other news media just don't think it's a story. It's not important. Uh, but basically, as I said before, this is a major, major means that the PRC uses worldwide to co-opt, to coerce, to persuade others to support China. Why would people willingly support a, an expansionist, brutally repressive, arguably fascist, certainly inarguably genocidal totalitarian country? It's because they build united fronts with businesses and businessmen make money off of it. It's because ideologically, some on our, uh, in our college campuses, some in other organizations kind of like the idea of the Chinese Communist Party and kind of like the idea of a totalitarian regime. One way or the other, they win you over, the BRI countries. Oh, we're going to invest, we're going to build those railroads you've never been able to build for the past hundred years. We're going to build that port, Sri Lanka. And even though you'll never be able to repay us and we'll take control of that port for 99 years, you know, somehow you're going to make out on this deal. How will you make out? Your elites will be bribed. They'll be able to retire in a different country with the millions that they made. And then the average citizen will be left with China owning your port, owning that airfield, owning large tracts of your land, your land alongside the railroad they built. And you, your people will pay, or the people that the elites have abandoned will pay the price of these BRI contracts for years. But again, that's how they build United Fronts, one of them, some of the many ways that the PRC builds United Fronts globally. Before I talk about media warfare, I'll talk a little bit, uh, as I did earlier, why did I write the media warfare book? Media warfare is one of the three warfares. I wanted to write a book that would take what we call a deep dive into one of those three warfares to, to show how complex it is, to, to show how insidious it is, of course, but um, to, to go into great detail, so you're not, you know, the, the average person, and these books are written for laymen, 
uh, not necessarily scholars who worked all their lives in this field, which written so the average American can understand the book. It, it goes into great detail of all the, um, the, the means that the PRC uses to employ the media to achieve its political warfare objectives. Focused it on Taiwan because Taiwan's the number one country on the Chinese Communist Party's hit parade. Taiwan is the place where they try many of their political warfare uh, strategies, tactics, techniques, procedures. So it's a canary in the coal mine to use a, a hackneyed uh, cliche, but it, nonetheless, it's used often. What they do in Taiwan, eventually they're going to do against the Solomon Islands. They're going to eventually do that against Japan. They're going to eventually do it against other countries. So doing a case study of media warfare against Taiwan is a good place to start. And again, just like the first book, it isn't enough simply to admire the problem. I gave very sound recommendations for Taiwan and other countries. Every other country is under similar attack. Uh, the idea was here's recommendations you can take and, and effectively employ to at least begin to detect, to deter, to counter and defeat this insidious type of warfare against you. The mechanisms that the Chinese Communist Party has set up internally and globally are powerful for conducting media warfare. They've set up some billion, mega billion dollar organizations, platforms, media networks, or they call them flagship media organizations, to send out propaganda worldwide. And we have Americans, I know, well-educated, well-positioned in the government or academia say, oh, well, I'm way too smart to fall for PRC propaganda. Well, you may or may not be, actually, because what they do is they don't necessarily, they'll, they'll broadcast their propaganda through these platforms, but what they're doing is they're buying Thai newspapers. And the Thai newspapers run the Xinhua releases as if they're written in Thailand, because China gives it to them written in Thai. In Zimbabwe, in uh, Brazil, in other countries around the world, these, these many these powerfully resourced organizations are providing basically press releases in the native language that's being run by organizations, news organizations in those countries, those target countries. And they're running it like it's their own staff that wrote it. It's PRC propaganda. And they're running it verbatim in many cases. It's a clear win for the PRC when you do this. So again, the, my, my colleagues and associates who say, oh no, I'm way too smart. I always see through when Jinwa or CCTV runs it. I know it's propaganda. Well, you don't know it if you're being bombarded uh, by you know hundreds of other countries where it's being run and you're being bombarded in your own country by a trusted news organization from your own country that's running this as news without knowing that it is Chinese Communist Party propaganda. They're buying journalists. Many, many journalists are brought over to China every year, all expense paid, uh, nice hotels, nice lodging. Uh, given grand tour of China, given booze, given girls, given guys, whatever they want. And then they go back and of course, and they're very reliable agents of influence for the PRC in the future. They also buy again, individual news publications or broadcast stations and then whole networks. Business 
example out of Thailand is a representative worldwide. The Sino-Thais uh, with close connections to the PRC run most of, uh, they're the most powerful business people in Thailand. So when you have your uh, businesses choose to invest their advertising dollars, uh, they will choose to invest it in, in publications that show that they're reliably subservient to the PRC's narrative. They won't, if you're criticizing China, you will not get those advertising dollars. So that's the Maoist uh, approach, and this is a term they use. They, uh, they use business to surround the media, and it's very effective. It works in the United States as well to silence people. And then there's censorship, coercion, violence. I used to write for a publication called Asia Times uh, out of Hong Kong. And even back then, before the, the crackdown in Hong Kong, if they wrote something, maybe I wrote that was critical of China, uh, if they published that at night, they would come out, they would find their tires slashed and their cars and windshields smashed. Their children would be followed to school by thuggish looking people who, and they, they'd love to know, we, we, here's pictures of your of little you know, little Johnny and little Linda on their way to private school this morning, just to let the people working at the publication know you better tow our line. Gets worse than that though. Matt Pottinger, former deputy national security advisor, before he was there, he was a the head of the Wall Street Journal in Beijing. His sources would not just get beaten up, they'd be killed. Matt was personally attacked room was broken in all the time. Again, these, this is part of the PRC's media warfare. That's why I emphasize violence and coercion. Then social media warfare, we see manifestations of that in the United States. It's not new to Americans, but basically it's using so-called netizens in the 50 cent army to online destroy celebrities, online destroy writers, online destroy academics, politicians, who speak out against the People's Republic of China. It's a, it's a massive campaign called Social Media Warfare um, or WeChat Terror, there's different names for it, to silence critics and make sure that they those critics begin supporting the PRC line. Media warfare tactics, again, pretty much self-explanatory, but pop culture and music, again, very insidious. We all understand newspapers, radio broadcasts. What we don't understand is how the social media works and then how the entertainment world works. Wolf Warrior uh, movies, for example, really big in China, blockbusters there, uh, made the most movies in the, the propaganda films they're putting out now with their revisionist view of the Korean War, of course, are, are massive money makers over there. But these also have tremendous impact worldwide when they go out to give the the prc narrative um so indoctrinement uh is a, a serious issue that i don't think we look at enough in america where our own hollywood has been pretty badly co-opted by the prc prc gets final say over uh, most scripts or hollywood doesn't get to um distribute those movies in the the, the very lucrative chinese market BRI as political warfare is a serious issue. And again, most countries that are making money, most countries that are their elites are making money, put it that way, won't recognize what's going on or refuse to recognize what's going on. But uh, as Robert Spalding has called it, it's infrastructure warfare, but it's, uh, as uh, Anne-Marie Brady calls it, it's basically a classic United Front operation. 
look at all the countries in red on this map. They're all basically co-opted in one way or the other by the PRC because they're reliant on PRC money for the infrastructure that may or may not appear after a lot of investment and a lot of people are paid off. But basically those countries will begin as Greece has done and others who you might not have expected to do it, but uh, they'll begin to tow the PRC narratives and support the PRC and international organizations and, um, and, and silence critics in their own country of the PRC in order to get the, BRC, uh, the BRI money. What isn't shown here, and it's a very serious concern, is what's happening in the Pacific Islands. And they're being brought into the BRI and uh, we're losing those, that part of the world, that, that those small land countries, there's a small amount of land there, but they're massive in terms of EEZ, those large ocean countries, small island countries, but large ocean countries in the South Pacific that we paid dearly for in World War II taking them back island by bloody island as a former Marine. I know that history very well. Basically, the PRC is, has got a, a policy of neo-colonization down in the Pacific Islands, and it's been very effective. And it's part of BRI. So political warfare, again, winning without going to kinetic warfare to basically colonize an area of the world that's strategically vital to us. On the digital colonization slide here, they call it the digital Silk Road, but it's it's basically they're 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 collecting massive amounts of data worldwide because they're building the infrastructure to collect that data, the, the digital infrastructure. They're they're building surveillance states, and by helping authoritarian countries with their surveillance, they're taking control of those authoritarian countries because they're surveilling that country too, and they're getting all the data that they, the country they're supporting gets. Um, they're using artificial intelligence, which is kind of, uh, again, deserves a lot more study in the US than it has gotten in terms of public exposure. Um, then the 50 Cent Army, the hackers, all of that is all part of the digital colonization that is part of political warfare. Most Americans don't realize that China has proxy armies. Those of us who've been around a little bit longer understand that the PRC supported most of the revolutionary wars in the 1960s and 70s in Southeast Asia and across Africa, South America. What they don't understand today is that a PRC proxy army, the United Wa State Army in, in Myanmar, occupies a chunk of land the size of Belgium. The Myanmar government, even before the coup, the Myanmar government couldn't make a decision without the UW, United Wa State Army being involved in it. And basically the UWSA was acting as a proxy for the PRC. And that was just one of many, many ethnic armies in Myanmar. But look more, look to more proxy armies, look to more security organizations of retired or former PRC commandos, PRC special operations folks, um, just like Blackwater, but worse than Blackwater because it's working for a totalitarian regime with no accountability. But again, part of political warfare. Very briefly, it's always important to ask how countries responded to PRC political warfare. Ask most Georgetown graduates, as I do when I work with the embassies overseas in Thailand, Taiwan, Japan, and State Department personnel, uh, other places. How, how are you guys responding to political warfare? The answer is, what are you talking about? What's political warfare? I'm not exaggerating. 
read the preface of the, my political warfare book. I name names and have the references to support. They don't understand what's going on. Um, they're not taught it at Georgetown. They're not taught it at the war colleges. They're not taught it at command and staff colleges. Um, they stopped teaching it about 30 years ago when the Berlin Wall went down. So in America, we don't understand it. Uh, most other countries don't understand what's happening all around them in their own countries. Um, authoritarian governments, they like the political warfare because it helps them stay in power. But those who don't want to necessarily become vassal states of China, they really aren't strong enough to push back right now. So basically, in the absence of international support, democracies in even authoritarian countries that we would support because they are they are not they're not willing to be under the jackboot of China um, without strong American leadership, they can't fight back. So that's how they react, mostly unaware it's going on, can't put all the pieces together like we're doing here in this talk um, as to what's happening around them in their country. And then when they do recognize it, they really don't have the capability to fight back. And the PRC is well aware though that there is growing recognition and they're infiltrating organizations that are exposing them. Uh, they're, they're discrediting them. They're well aware that there are people out there exposing the political warfare operations. Um, Hudson Institute, ideally Westminster Institute will, will, will get in the forefront of this as well. Um, they're, they're trying to block and undermine, subvert those organizations that are exposing what they're doing on the political warfare front. I'll only talk briefly because I'm running out of time here and we want to have a discussion. I'll only talk briefly about political warfare in the kingdom of Thailand, but it's it's massive. And uh, basically there's strong ties between Thailand and China. That's a given, but again, two chapters of my book go into that, that very detailed history. It, there's been times that they've been at war with each other. There were the, during the Cold War, the ties were deeply, deeply suspicious. Uh, with good reason of the People's Republic of China because the People's Republic of China was funding and operating and training the Communist Party of Thailand uh, forces that were fighting a 30-year civil war against the government of Thailand. So they had every reason to be um, suspicious of, of China because China was trying to uh, overthrow uh, Thailand and its monarchy and its democracy such as it was and install a communist government. So the uh, situation changed after the end of the Vietnam War and the, the way that ended. Uh, the, basically, right now, the situation is that the PRC has effectively employed all techniques in Thailand and on the political warfare front and played up to the Sino-Thai business community that is now uh, heavily involved in politics. In the past, they were kept out of the political arena and the military, but now they're, they're heavily involved. And uh, basically, there's been a seismic shift in Thailand. Most Americans think, oh, Thailand, our treaty ally, one of our five treaty allies in Asia, um, you know, pro-American, uh, not so much. Not so much. And again, I, I commend you to the book more so you can go into much richer detail as to how we got to be in this position. But um, the, the pendulum has swung very much in Beijing's favor and very much away from the United States. And then a fair amount of that is due to the fault of the United States inept statesmanship 
um, inept policies, um, and uh, but a fair amount of the the, the blame uh, lies with Thailand's politicians, military, uh, and uh, basically a very concerted effort by the PRC to win over uh, Thailand to more towards its side. This is the PRC, PRC goal. You always look at, you do analysis of countries. There's a, a systematic counterintelligence and strategic communication methodology you lose to it, you use to assess it. And you look at the goals and the strategies, objectives, all that. Uh, so basically the goal is that the PRC's political warfare is that the Royal Thai government becomes compliant, reliable, basically a supportive, and they use this term ally. Well, I hear at the military academies and I hear from others in the, the armed forces, China is our ally. That should be horrifying to Americans because China, uh, Thailand was our treaty ally and they don't think of us so much that way anymore. Like, again, there's history there. They saw what happened in 2012 when we, uh, the United States government basically abandoned the Philippines at Scarborough Shoal and they, they realize that America could do the same thing to Thailand. There, there's, a, there's a history here as to why we got to this point, but the Thais consider China to be their ally. Not every Thai, but key people do. And they use that term. Again, the, uh, I won't go into all of these strategies, but they're, they're pretty standard. They've just done it very well in Thailand. The themes, you always look at the themes that are being used and the themes that were successful here is they're certainly exploiting ethnic ties, although there's pushback on that. Trade ties, really important here to, to play up. The media warfare, it's very successful in Thai media. Social media, see a fair amount of pushback against China, but in the, the regular media, you don't see much pushback at all. And again, some are quoting verbatim PRC propaganda that is handed to them, basically. The Royal Thai government is being encouraged to continue its, uh, its the more authoritarian aspects that it's employed here. Uh, even though it's an elected government, it's encouraged by China to resist democracy. And there's laws here that are very draconian in terms of free speech, what you can say, what you can't say, what you can be arrested for, what you can be sued for. And again, this is very, very strongly encouraged by China to, re, to repress those freedoms that we take for granted here in Thailand. This is what China hopes to get from its political warfare operations in Thailand. It's basically Thailand acts as uh, the PRC's enforcer and protector. They don't necessarily want Thailand as a vassal state. They just want Thailand not to oppose it and to support it whenever it can. Uh, they're building on the military side. They're selling submarines to Thailand. They're going to have be assigning PLA Navy personnel to ports that Americans use. Basically, they've been pretty successful in achieving these outcomes. The alliance is not what we think it is. What the Thai-U.S. alliance is no longer what uh, some Americans have historically thought it was. It's not split completely. There's going back and forth a bit and. With it, even within the Thai government as to how close they should get to, to China, but under the right circumstances, and I'll talk about that a little bit briefly, uh, that alliance could be split completely and abrogated. Again, the impact, a seismic shift, most Americans don't recognize, and uh, the, the environment for freedom in, in Thailand is not good now, and that is supported by the PRC through its various political warfare 
uh, means. Taiwan is the goal there. It's number one, as I told you, on the PRC's hit parade. Their goal is to demoralize and disintegrate the country internally so they don't have to invade. The history there is well known. Uh, they've been, a, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party has been at war with the nationalists or the KMT for a hundred years now. Political warfare has been key to that. But now it's not the KMT in power anymore. Chi uh, Taiwan is a vibrant democracy and it presents Taiwan presents an existential threat to the CCP because it proves to the world that Chinese people do not need a brutal totalitarian dictatorship to, to control them. The Chinese people can thrive in a democracy. So Xi Jinping is increasingly threatening military force and that's been a very hot topic in the news media lately as it should be. The goal is what Xi calls the, the China dream and the great rejuvenation. The narrative that we should not buy into is that they're unifying, reunifying with Taiwan. Taiwan is not part of China, has not been since ancient times, but that's the narrative and a lot of Americans buy into that because they don't, you know, they buy into PRC media warfare uh, or they've accepted it without knowing the real history. And again, the objectives, basically, they're, they're going to get regime change one way or the other through, through subverting the democratic process and undermining the regime. That didn't work out so well in the 2020 elections. In fact, it backfired on the PRC, and the second book goes into that in great detail. And again, they're using all the traditional strategies and, and, and new ones on Taiwan that they'll use on other countries later. Again, selected tactics. I won't go into many of them. They're mainly self-explanatory. And I've already talked about uh, social media warfare and uh, pan-red academics, uh, what that means. Themes, again, inevitable PRC victory. That's a worldwide theme. Um, again, some very specific themes. Uh, but again, another worldwide theme. The U.S. is weak. It's unreliable. And it's increasingly irrelevant. It's not going to come to your aid. Taiwan, especially after what you saw in Afghanistan. That's a very powerful uh, message that they're trying to, to drive into and terrify and demoralize the people of Taiwan right now and regionally. Again, the rest of these are pretty self-explanatory. So they're, they are actually getting some of their academics and their elites to buy into the idea that corrupt Western ideals like democracy are not for the people of Taiwan. I've, I've had uh, KMT leaders and academics tell me that democracy is not for the people of Taiwan and that they're buying in to the PRC um, media warfare narratives. Hope for outcomes. Taiwan is part as a, a province of China. The PLA is using Taiwan to base missiles, to send out ballistic missile submarines and attack submarines and use its aircraft to to go further down to threaten Australia, the Pacific Islands, and the, uh, the first and second island chain to circumvent that and to just solidify China's illegal claim on the South China Sea. Okay, so what happens if we don't start recognizing, de detecting, deterring, countering, and defeating PRC political warfare a lot more effectively than we're doing right now? What are we gonna look like 20 years from now? Look back 20 years, 2001 was a heartbeat ago. 
2040 isn't that far away. What's a region look like? I'll show you. This isn't my assessment entirely. This is Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments did a pretty good look out to the future that I used when I was working with NATO recently uh, to project what the region looks like in 2035. So I've extrapolated the CSBA work my own from my own experience in the region up close and personal and talking to people here this is what the region will look like if we don't get serious and get a hell of a lot better at fighting prc political warfare basically we america is out of the region the treaty with thailand abrogated the treaty with korea abrogated taiwan occupied by pla forces uh, and basically a province of the PRC. The Pacific Islands, no longer ours. So basically you can see the breakdown here. And again, I, I'd refer you to the study that I referenced in the previous slide and also the um, other articles that I've written, which goes into more detail on this. But basically by 2040, China is a hegemon regionally, pretty much globally. America has fallen back to Guam, mid-Pacific and the Hawaii. And uh, the China model supplants liberal democracy as the ideal governance model, both regionally and probably globally. The view from China, this is what it will look like. Those red stars are going to be assured basing or actual you know, full-time full uh, presence or access to bases in those locations. And uh, the PRC is pushing out, expanding in every direction. That's the China dream, she's China dream. Another view of the first and uh, second island chain um, at that time, basically they're broken. And most Indo-Asia Pacific nations are vassal states or at least neutral. Japan is isolated, Australia is isolated. Most other countries basically are, are kneeling before China. The final slide recommendations you can go into that as little or as much as you want to. I've got 10 of the many recommendations that I put in the books, but for what it is America has to do to to get on top of this situation right now. But basically, I'll emphasize we have to recognize they are at war with us. We need to start calling it political warfare, not malign influence, not, you know, we're not in strategic competition. They're at war with us. If we don't understand that, we will never develop the policies, we will never develop the organization, get the resources we need to counter this. Words are important. They drive how we act and what we do. Then we set up the organizations that we let atrophy or completely disappear, like USIA, effective organizations that we can begin to start countering this. Um, our law enforcement needs a lot of work, our counterintelligence needs a lot of work, and we need uh, institutions that, again, maybe Westminster Institute could uh, become heavily engaged in the education part, setting up an Asian political warfare center of excellence equivalent, on, and also starting forces so that I've gone into great detail in my first book and specific the curriculum of what we need to begin teaching. We're not teaching them at our Ivy League institutions. We're not teaching them at our national defense universities and uh, Marine Corps University. We're not teaching these anymore. We need to begin a national education program. Again, recommendations six through 10, we can go into as much or as little as possible, but I'm over my speaking time. So let's go to the final slide, which is, let's talk Q&A time. Thank you, Professor Grishanik.
in a way, the United States has a lot to be thankful for to China because of its behavior in Hong Kong and its aggressive behavior elsewhere and the rather forthright way in which uh, Xi Jinping speaks about his objectives and how he's going to reach them, that there is a bipartisan consensus within the United States and within the United States Congress that China really is a threat about which we have to get ourselves organized to face. Your tremendous experience in Asia uh, gives you the perspective with which to answer how, to what extent that's true in the countries in the region. I mean, you, you've spoken to the, the Taiwan issue and that the, the clampdown in Hong Kong helped change the political complexion regarding China within Taiwan. Can you, can you give us a further survey of, of the area and maybe even uh, go into a little more detail about the effects of this on Thai uh, public opinion and politics? The uh, a representative response to PRC bullying and uh, political warfare is called the Milk Tea Alliance, where um, the young people in Taiwan and in Thailand, they, they enjoy milk tea, bubble tea. Um, the, uh, this, this alliance that they built is they push back on the so-called netizens, the 50 cent army, the which is largely you know, uh, strategic support for soldiers who are in the role of uh, pretending to be, you know, online personalities. They're trolls, basically, and the so-called netizens. A lot of them are citizens that get paid or are hyper-nationalized to actually go online and attack celebrities in Thailand and uh, denigrate uh, Thais who are critical of China and try to destroy them. There's pushback. Uh, when you look at the governments, though, uh, Thai officials, former prime ministers, friend of mine, or I'm sorry, former foreign ministers, friend of mine, uh, and he's quoted in, in my first book, but basically Thailand bends with the winds. Right now, the strong wind is coming from the north. And strong wind is coming from, from Beijing. It's not coming from Washington. And so the countries here are Singapore, is basically saying there's nothing we can do behind closed doors. There's nothing we can do. You know, we, we're not sure we can rely on the U.S. anymore. Um, Afghanistan, the disaster in Afghanistan uh, is, is reverberating through the region. On a, uh, if you, uh, Scarborough, I was, you know, Scarborough Shoal, I was dealing with the countries here at the time. And our Philippines friends, our Thai friends, our allies, not just friends, are saying after Scarborough, we can't count on America anymore. You, you we were, you know, Philippines is a treaty ally. Uh, the, the president of the Philippines personally requested, flew to Washington to request President Obama support uh, the Philippines when, when China basically stole Scarborough Shoal after Kirk Campbell and, and the, the uh, Clinton State Department supposedly brokered a deal, the, the, the Chinese violated the deal the next day, basically. And uh, the president of the Philippines flew and begged Obama for help. And America brushed him off. 
Since 2012, there was a sense that America isn't going to stand by its treaty allies. And then watching Afghanistan, that no matter the, the, the fact that American news media is not really talking about this anymore, Asia is talking about that a lot. And so again, we've, we've helped to contribute to that narrative I, I described in graphic detail earlier. America is unreliable. America is not going to stand by you. China is going to be here. We're your neighbor and we're powerful. We're more powerful every day and America is weaker and more irrelevant every day. Um, so when you ask what's the sense here, there's dread, there's foreboding, there's a, a degree of confidence in Taiwan that we're going to stand up. We're not going to go quietly into the night uh, through a good portion of the people of Taiwan, but they know militarily the only way that it happens, that the outcome is good in their behalf is if the U.S. is going to be there militarily to protect them. They're getting mixed signals. The CNN interview with President Biden, that sounded great. The first headlines were powerful. I even sent them out. Biden says twice, we will go, we will fight to defend Taiwan. And then it should have been predictable. Uh, they walk it back. So it's sending very confusing, very mixed and demoralizing signals out there. President Tsai is putting on a good face. The upcoming elections in Japan. Right now, Japan has a uh, an LDP government that is that wants to push back, that wants a double the defense budget, basically because of China, the threat by China. They understand they're I'm doing a lot of talks about political warfare to Japanese audiences. They're beginning to wake up to that threat. They've dealt with China for 2000 years. They've been face to face with them. But basically, they, too, have been ignorant of what uh, these are really good people, well placed in the media, well government, uh, business. They didn't recognize what's been going on with the United Front operations, the media subversion and all that. They, as a, across the board in their own country, and they're beginning to wake up to that. But this next election coming up very soon, uh, if the outcome is not good and the Komeito uh, party, which is pro-Beijing and, and LDP has to partner with it, um, if LDP loses more seats, Kamato wins more seats, then there's more of it goes back to a pacifist accommodationist national policy from Japan that, that those efforts to double the defense budget will be defeated. Those efforts to more uh, assertively confront uh, the PRC will be defeated. So even Japan, where, where there's hope, uh, there's problem. Australia standing strong. New Zealand, a very weak link, incredibly weak link in the five eyes and the other, you know, the, our overall defense structure. The, the Pacific Islands, the rest of Southeast Asia, the rest of Northeast Asia, looking to America for strong leadership, but not seeing a whole lot on the political warfare front, seeing much less than we saw under the previous administration when Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, uh, Deputy Secretary, or not Deputy Secretary, Assistant Secretary Stilwell, um, National Security uh, Advisor O'Brien, Deputy Na National Security Advisor Pottinger, um, the head of the FBI, the, it, a lot of people are talking about the political warfare threat, trying to educate the American public, getting programs going. Crickets right now from Blinken, Sullivan, Austin, the 
the, the national security team, you don't hear them talking about it. Um, yeah, there's some good words being said about Taiwan. Again, that, that's a separate issue in a way that, that I'd like to see stronger uh, vow of going, you know, no more strategic ambiguity. But again, we'll get into that on the political warfare front. We see no one in the administration educating like Secretary Pompeo did. That's why my second book is dedicated to Secretary of State Pompeo, just like my first one is dedicated to George Kennan. Great voices. Kennan's voice was the voice that got America mobilized to fight back during the Cold War on the political warfare battlefield, not, and also he developed the concept of containment, uh, the, the ultimately successful strategy uh, to win the Cold War. Pompeo was the one leading, leading the charge. I mean, there were others two great heroes uh, in, in, in the administration, but they spoke out uniformly. The Secretary of Defense was speaking out. There were several of them, but they spoke out uh, against the China threat, about the China threat. Uh, right now, again, I, I don't hear those voices. I hear, well, they're a pacing, you know, we're, we're using them as a pacing challenge. We're using them, you know, no one's saying, no, they're a threat. Even Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, no, they're not, they're not. Maybe we, we have to be careful how we characterize them. Um, if you're not saying the right words, if you don't recognize they're at war, it gets back to my opening statement, they're at war with us. If you don't recognize that and you don't mobilize your 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 executive branch, President Biden, to coherently across the board deal with the threat, we're going to be fragmented and we're going to be defeated. So yes, you I'll reinforce some of the pessimism you said that you felt after my talk earlier. Unless we reverse things rather rapidly, um, I, I don't see a good outcome here. Well, the Soviet Union and now Russia and certainly China understand the vulnerabilities of the United States and of our allies in, within NATO and, uh, and in the countries you just mentioned. And they, they exploit them brilliantly and they divide and they weaken and they dissolve. Yes. Well, if we were to seriously counter the political warfare that's being conducted against us, we would have to understand the vulnerabilities of the PRC. What are they? Well, it's a, it's a brutally repressive, fascist, genocidal, totalitarian state. We've got a great story to tell. Um, a lot of people detest and fear China. Don't, don't misunderstand what I said about the, the mood over here in Asia. It's what are you going to do when the bully is at, you know, is right next door to you on the playground with you. America is a minimum 3000 miles away. It has not shown you know, stellar leadership or, you know, in fact, it's shown great ineptitude regarding Afghanistan, a 20 year war that we fought an effort that we, 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 we left, we were routed. It was worse than Dunkirk. It was, it, it was a, a, a route where we left many behind the lines afterwards. Now the number seems to be 500, but maybe more. Americans, American citizens are those we, we should have gotten out. The number keeps going up every day as, it, you know, we, as we knew it would. But if, um, but I, but if I, I may, I, I understand and 
you spoke eloquently to those points. I mean, inside China. Um, inside China. How yeah, do we? In other words, in other words, um, you you are a veteran of the U.S. Information Agency and U.S. Information Service, as was I. And um, there were strategies uh, within that institution when it existed. Uh, how to counter the disinformation and also to create problems within the societies that were supplying it by by speaking directly to the people there and conducting other kinds of operations we and certainly part of the truth is exactly what you have said about china the totalitarian repressive brutal regimes etc based on a lie um but what, what how would we reach within china to give them something to worry about the way in which they uh, in which they are giving us something to worry about within the united states the way in which russia gave spain something to worry about because i i learned how active they were in the catalan splittist movement not that they were pro-catalan they just wanted to see a nato member divided within itself is what do you see what i'm trying to get at so you do, incidentally, I work with USIA, I was not an employee of it. Um, you, a strategic communications plan. I mean, it gets back to having a policy regarding China to begin with, which we don't seem to have. Uh, and then a, a, a strategic campaign plan uh, would call for elements like going after um, internal messaging, would go after the money that the 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 princes the princelings and the, the 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 those in power are getting through corruption you would highlight you would create those divides in a country where it's going it's a lot harder now with the great firewall and all the massive repression that you know they can't seem to find all those drug dealers that are sending the fentanyl that's killing a minimum of 20,000 Americans and, and arguably much more every year. Uh, they can't seem to find them in China. But you know, if you are Chinese and you tweet uh, or use Weibo to put out a tweet, uh, the equivalent of a tweet that says Xi Jinping sucks rotten eggs, within 30 seconds, you're going to have someone kicking in your front door because they can find you and you'll be off to one of their concentration camps very quickly. So it's it's hard, but we can get that messaging out. We have overseas diaspora with Chinese language um, publications that we can get back into the business of controlling and, and, uh, and, and getting free publications that aren't under the thumb of the PRC. Um, but again, there's many themes we can exploit within China to show the corruption, to show the brutality, to, to highlight Tiananmen. Tiananmen Square is erased from the national consciousness within China. You, you, you know, the, the lengths they go to, uh, again, highlighted in my second book, the lengths they go to, to, to repress any, any, even the use of Lego tanks, the pictures of Lego tanks or rubber ducks around the time of the Tiananmen Square massacre in early June, they're all censored. Um, Winnie the Pooh pictures, because they, they, um, uh, there was a comment made that, that Xi Jinping looks like Winnie the Pooh. Well, they're all censored now by the Great Firewall because it's, 
you know, around, especially around the Tiananmen Square Massacre anniversary, everything that you can conceivably think of, and again, my, my second book goes into great detail on this, um, is, is, is censored. We can work around that. We have the technology. We can get those tech giants that have been running rather rogue, uh, maybe to, to work a little bit closer with us rather than work with the PRC um, to censor Americans. Maybe we can get them. But we have other resources to reach out into China and then to reach out into Chinese who are overseas as well. And they can get the word back in. But yeah, this would be part of a much larger campaign plan. And there's lots to exploit the corruption, the waste, um, the empty cities that they built, the brand new gleaming cities, the Potemkin villages. Um, the, um, again, organ harvesting. organ harvesting, all the other, um, all the other proven uh, egregious crimes against humanity that are going on in, in there, the, the, the Chinese people by and large don't know about it. We, we have ways of of showing the, you know, the, the difference of the disparity of wealth over there. You know, why is Xi Jinping's daughter at Harvard? Why, you know, <laughs> the whole separate issue about our academic institutions. But um, sure, they're, they're, again, smart people put them in a room, lock them up for about, you know, seven days, slide pizzas under the door. And I'll bet you we still have people like you. We still have people who could put this together. A lot of the State Department people you know, I've spoken at the at the Foreign Service Institute, talked to their people who teach the 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 public affairs folks, the folks who should be the strategic communication leads for the State Department. They didn't understand what the term political warfare meant. The faculty, so of course, no one's teaching uh, that, and they they don't think about it. I've talked to ambassadors in Asia, in Thailand, you know, charge aid affairs who don't see it as a threat at all. We're all around them. Uh, with U.S. ambassadors tweeting out pictures of the shoes she's wearing today and what she's having for lunch, and the Chinese ambassador is getting front-page coverage of the $12 billion rail project that the Chinese are going to build for Thailand, which country do you think is going to get the love and admiration of the Thai people? But there are still people like you and others who have the skills that can build this plan and execute it. Well, the problem is that there is no institution from which to do it, as you're well aware, because you've mentioned right. in your writings, the U.S. Information Agency no longer exists. Secretary Pompeo was certainly trying to do what he could uh, from the State Department, but uh, as, as I'm sure you've learned in your contact with Foreign Service officers, their job's diplomacy, not public diplomacy, and they, they'll take job one rather than job two. Uh, so it, it's it's not the natural place for that public diplomacy mission to be carried out. If we could return to the the military political side of things for a moment, it seems uh, Japan has the growing realization that it's a strategic in a strategically untenable position if uh, China invades and takes Taiwan. But what could be done in Taiwan or with the help of Taiwan's purported friends, including the United States and perhaps Japan, to give uh, to, to deter China, to make sure it knows it can be hurt in a big way? Something short of a world war where they can't say, well, you're not going to exchange Taipei for Los Angeles. 
uh, but that from Taipei, from Taiwan, which is an unsinkable aircraft carrier in a way, uh, it could develop or be given the capacities to make sure China knows it could be hurt in a serious way if they invade. A lot of looked at that a, a, a pretty closely, and a, a lot of good people are, are looking at that. The missiles that can take out the not just the amphibious assault ships, um, but it's it's the the roll-on roll-off ships, the roto ships, the the uh, the entire commercial fleet in China by law really belongs to the People's Liberation Army. I mean, in, in effect, it's all the the, the uh, what we we call civil reserve air air fleet. Um, there's a small number of civilian aircraft that we we, we rely on here in the uh, United States, but in China, all of it, almost all of it, is made to, to carry paratroopers, their their fleet, and and their row row ships, and all of that. Uh, those can be used in a, in a rapidly put together amphibious assault um, attempt against um, Taiwan. The, the the key right now because the sense of urgency that um, that Xi Jinping is conveying. It wasn't that long ago that he said he gave the PLA until 2020 to be ready to invade Taiwan. And now he's increasingly threatening to actually invade Taiwan because they, they're seeing that um, since Hong Kong, especially Taiwan is pushing back uh, hard on the political warfare or put it, they're pushing back, but not as, as strong as they could be. Um, so the, the military threat is very real. And, and I, I don't like seeing articles and people who, who just you know dismiss it, people who are not qualified to dismiss it because they, they say, well, they don't have enough amphibious assault ships. They don't need enough. They just need enough to do a certain um, a part of it, but the rest of it could be merchant ships if, if the, if the row-rows aren't being sunk. So get them the missiles to sink the row-rows. Get them the, uh, the 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 capability quickly that they can put at risk the airfields that they've been enhancing. At least three major airfields are being uh, enhanced now, as you and I speak, um, to uh, to stage and uh, and rearm uh, forward air refuel, et cetera, all the aircraft that might be needed to attack Taiwan uh, within uh, uh, very close you know, across the strait from Taiwan. Um, the staging areas, and again, there won't go into all the scenarios where you know maybe they, they have an exercise where they're at sea and then they just turn from the exercise and conduct the assault. Well, that that's that's harder to defeat, but you can at least take out staging areas, given the missiles to do that. And they again they're working on that. Uh, they've they've got some some good missiles now, and then the anti-air capability because now you're talking that they do have an aircraft carrier and you can. You know they're going to have several more fairly soon and they can now they they don't just circumnavigate the island you can attack 360 now that didn't used to be the threat robert it used to be basically everything was going to be coming in uh, pretty directly across the strait now if you've got uh, uh the amphibious assault ships that uh, the 071s and the 075s that can carry a lot of helicopters um, and launch seven or so simultaneously, and you know you got a lot of a lot of uh, PLA Marines and PLA uh, the assault uh, amphibious assault army troops uh, uh, inserted by helicopter. Now they're coming in 
from the east side. So give them the missiles to take that out uh, because they're never going to have enough well-trained forces. In the longer term, something that we've been pounding on the table of, uh, since the last assessments, major assessments that I did almost uh, 15 years ago, 16 years ago of the Taiwan Armed Forces were we need to get them training on a much larger scale in Hawaii, in uh, the deserts of California, the 29 Palms and Fort Irwin, in larger sized units. We, we've done some small sized units, but we haven't done them much. And the small numbers that President Tsai publicly acknowledged, small uh, numbers of soft forces, special ops, and Marine Corps special ops reconnaissance folks that we've had in there training, that's not enough. It's good, it's full time, that has an effect, that has morale alone is important. That if someone's with us side by side, Americans uh, are here side by side full time, instead of we send someone to a school for six months, person comes back and is basically ostracized because you're thinking too American. No, now you have that, you have that continuous face-to-face -face working um, uh, together, but we need to do that with larger units through combined armed live fire training, which they do not do in Taiwan. So the, to make the, the military force credible, we need to do a lot better training and better, you know, we're helping with the weapons, but the missiles that will take out the attack that will, uh, put at risk the vessels, the aircraft, and the departure airfields, the attack airfields, and the, the ports and, and the, the staging areas. That's going to give pause. And then the massive, we have to make sure, again, by saying America will respond, you're going to get overwhelming firepower coming at you, China, when America, within hours, begins deploying forces out of Japan from carriers, from, you know, strategic forces out of the, you know, air, air lift out of the U.S. And then you're going to pay a price that you'll, from which you will never recover economically. I mean, it's not just, it's not just kinetic. It's not just putting rounds on target. It's we're going to take you down economically. Every account you have in the United States, it's every, every, uh, you know, you want to be in the World Trade Organization? We're going to make sure you're not anymore. You're going to pay, you're going to pay a, a fatal price uh, politically and economically for doing this. But we, we got to make that clear. Here's like a very strong itinerary. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. I would like to thank uh, Professor Kerry Pershanik for speaking so powerfully on the subject of uh, Chinese political warfare and particularly the cases of Taiwan and Thailand. I want to encourage our audience to uh, go to the Westminster Institute webpage and see the other videos that we're offering, a number of which are on the subject of China, Taiwan, and Japan, uh, to learn more about these strategically uh, vital security questions. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Bob Riley, your host.